everybody, it is Friday, May 17th, 2019, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brett Hazeldyke, and we're here to talk to you about car news, sometimes some car culture stuff, and definitely a lot of car whatever. Uh, On this week's episode, we're really going to focus in on some news, leaks, and other stories about uh, crossovers and SUVs. Uh, Like I've been doing in previous episodes, it's nice to kind of focus in on a specific topic and kind of touch on some things that are going on. Um, So we've got some news stories about some uh, electric crossovers, some hybrids, uh, some traditional mainline ones, as well as a new body-on-frame SUV that looks like it's coming from a major American auto auto manufacturer, uh, which could be a pretty interesting thing. But kind of before we get to all the main part of the news, just kind of wanted to touch on a little bit of the crossover market as we speak. Uh, It's been a pretty wild year when you start to think about things when it comes to crossovers. We've had the all-new Toyota RAV4 come out. Hyundai launched the new Santa Fe alongside a bunch of other crossovers and SUVs between itself and the Kia sub-brand. We've had a lot of growth in electric crossovers coming from Germany. Uh, There's been a boom in just this general body shape. Even in more car-like vehicles, we're beginning to see the crossover and SUV body style enter their DNA strands, and they're beginning to mutate uh, into these micro SUVs and crossovers that, you know, depending on how you want to look at them, can kind of be considered both a car or a crossover. I'm thinking of cars like the Nissan Kicks or the new Hyundai Venue uh, that kind of really straddle that line in a weird way, uh, kind of like the Kia Soul has for the past few years. It's kind of tough for me being a fan of automotive technology and engineering and really being a fan of driving to see this kind of change start to happen. And, you know, it's something that I think I'm just going to have to get used to. Uh, One thing to kind of compare this to, I think, that maybe brings on somewhat of an interesting comparison is when you start to consider how the car market looked back in the 90s. You know, in the early 90s and mid-90s, you had every car company making every type of car for every type of buyer. And, you know, you had some brands like GM that had had the capability to do that because they had so many sub-brands underneath them. You know, you could get a very interesting uh, family wagon from Chevrolet on a platform that was shared with an Oldsmobile that was a little bit more sporty, uh, that was also shared with a Cadillac in some weird way. Uh, And it really kind of got down to that very specific, you know, couple thousand buyers uh, that GM needed in order to turn a profit. And with the I don't want to say advent necessarily, but the growth in the crossover and SUV market uh, brought on by the likes of the Jeep XJ Cherokee, uh, the Ford Explorer, several other models like that. Really, a lot of that kind of went away. The money was in SUVs, uh, and that's where all development ended up going. And then, you know, we had the market crash, we had the gas crunch, and all the attention again turned away from SUVs. And I think, you know, we're at this point where I think automakers kind of learned their lesson 
to some extent. I don't want to say that they did in every single case, uh, but I think they definitely realized that they do need to have a backup plan if gas does get expensive. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the increased attention for hybrid SUVs and crossovers, where it's a mild hybrid setup, or it's a hybrid system that is so unobtrusive that you would almost never know it was a hybrid. I'm thinking of uh, the Toyota RAV4 hybrid as an example. Uh, it's a very small, added cost to choose that vehicle versus the standard RAV4. Uh, and it really, honestly, to me, makes a hell of a lot more sense to get the hybrid RAV4 instead of the standard gasoline one, simply because of how much fuel you're gonna end up saving and the time you own that vehicle. Uh, it's still got four-wheel drive. You know, it's gonna do all the things that a regular RAV4 would do uh, when equipped somewhat comparatively. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to kind of see that trend continue. And a couple of these vehicles, I think, are pretty strong examples of that. Uh, but one is definitely a standout against uh, that, what I would say, maybe protecting your interests in case things go uh, tits up. So we'll kind of touch on that uh, after the bump with some news. Uh, but of course, one final reminder that uh, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you are subscribed. Uh, if you are, thank you so much. I appreciate you doing it. Uh, if you're on a, a platform where you're subscribed and they're asking for ratings, if you could do that, that would be wonderful. It does help us get seen by more people. And lastly, if you're enjoying any of this podcast, please share it uh, with somebody uh, if you think they may be interested. Uh, that also helps us continue to grow as well. But anyway, after the break, we'll talk about the first news story, which is uh, some more specific details on the 2020 Ford Escape Hybrid. Well, as promised, we're going to kick off this news section by talking about the 2020 Ford Escape Hybrid. Now, Ford has got the new Escape coming out later in 2019, and uh, as much as I think some people are kind of chomping at the bit to have the first all-new Ford product in really quite some time, uh, there's still a lot of stuff about this vehicle that we don't really know. And, you know, I think one of the more interesting things about the new Ford Escape is that they are offering this vehicle in so many different powertrain configurations uh, that you're really going to have to kind of shop around to see what works best for you. Um, if you don't recall back when we talked about the Escape a few weeks ago, uh, the Escape's going to be offered in front or all-wheel drive. Uh, there will be a standard, I think it's like a one and a half liter EcoBoost engine as the base option. Uh, there will be a two liter turbo. Uh, there will be a regular hybrid vehicle. And then there will eventually be a plug-in hybrid vehicle made available later in 2020. Now, the main hybrid model basically adapts a lot of what we've seen from previous hybrid Fords uh, into this new focus-based crossover uh, that doesn't really pack a whole lot of surprises, uh, but at least the fuel economy rating, I think, is pretty interesting. Uh, this does use the standard 2.5-liter Atkinson cycle inline four-cylinder uh, paired to its dual-mode hybrid system. Uh, this is the one that Ford pioneered many, many years ago, have continued to perfect under the Ford Fusion hybrid, and uh, I think even the Taurus hybrid now uh, uses a very similar system. Uh, and so this car, you know... I think is going to likely be an updated version of what we've seen. Maybe not all new, but at least modified for this particular vehicle. I think for me the big question is whether or not the Ford 
escape hybrid is going to use a more traditional type system where they're going to be front wheel drive first and then all wheel drive is going to have you know all the bits and bobs underneath or if they're going to go for something a little more new age uh, like the disconnectable uh, all-wheel drive systems like what Jeep has used in the past, or if it'll be a truly revolutionary product like the Toyota RAV4 with the electric motor mounted on the rear axle. Now speaking of that Toyota RAV4 hybrid, that one is rated at 40 miles per gallon average uh, with that all-wheel drive system. That is the only way you can get a RAV4 hybrid is with that uh, all-wheel drive system and it sounds like it works quite well and you don't pay a penalty for mileage almost to the point where I would say it makes almost no sense not to get the RAV4 hybrid compared to the standard RAV4. I think it's like a $1,200 price increase and depending on how you drive and what kind of situations you're in uh, you'll likely make up the difference in gasoline within the first year or so and that is a pretty good deal. Now over at Ford, they're saying that this new hybrid system is going to get 50% better fuel economy than the previous iteration of the vehicle. Uh, that previous hybrid system got about 25, 26 miles per gallon. Uh, so once you do the math, that works out to about 38, 39 miles per gallon, which is still admittedly pretty good. Uh, but I think the main thing here is going to be that more than likely that figure that they're talking about uh, will be the front-wheel drive escape hybrid, not an all-wheel drive unit. And I imagine if you do get an all-wheel drive escape hybrid, you're probably going to lose a few miles per gallon overall. That being said... I'm still very excited about this vehicle. Uh, I'm just really kind of curious to see what it is, how it acts, how it drives, because it is replacing so many cars inside the Ford lineup. Uh, this Escape is doing double duty, replacing both the Focus and the Fusion. Uh, it has to somehow find a way to be relatively affordable, uh, because currently the cheapest uh, Ford model available in their lineup is like $21,000 with the EcoSport, and that vehicle is hot trash. So, uh, Hopefully the escape isn't too much more uh, because pork people like me uh, won't really have an entry point into the Ford brand uh, for the foreseeable future. So uh, when will we hear more? Well, it sounds like uh, this Ford Escape is going to be available probably for pre-drives later this summer. I would expect by end of July, early August, uh, some auto journalists will probably be out there driving this vehicle and then we'll probably start seeing this vehicle on dealer lots by the end of September on into October. So, are you interested in this new Ford Escape Hybrid? Is 40 miles per gallon good enough for you uh, to go shopping this one compared to the Toyota RAV4? I think that's really the main question here. Uh, I definitely think it's worth a look, but there are a ton of other small crossovers to talk about. So speaking of vehicles that We'll need to do quite a bit of duty to cover different aspects of the segment that they're in. Volkswagen announced a new crossover today on accident down in Argentina called the Tarek, T-A-R-E-K. Uh, the Tarek will be Volkswagen's new entry-level crossover uh, for the Chinese market as well as the Americas and uh, a few other parts of Asia. This vehicle is meant to be a competitor to the Hyundai Kona, the Honda HRV, the Chevy Trax. Uh, you kind of get the picture. Uh, more or less, uh, to me, this sounds like it's going to end up becoming uh, the Volkswagen Polo-based crossover that I think we arguably should have gotten quite a long time ago. Uh, but the disappointing part, at least for me, is since this will likely be a little bit bigger than that, 
Uh, it's near enough a T-Rock-sized crossover, and it has, well, me and just about every other Volkswagen fan here in North America going, why don't you just give us the damn T-Rock? Uh, Context for what the T-Rock is, uh, more or less it's a Volkswagen Golf on stilts. Uh, it's kind of what the Tiguan used to be when the Tiguan first came out more than a decade ago now. Uh, and uh, the T-Rock, you know, has gotten a lot of praise for being, you know, a really fun to drive, uh, very capable, small crossover that doesn't really compromise a whole lot on it being larger uh, compared to the Golf. And with this Tarek being maybe a little bit smaller, based on a cheaper platform, using cheaper parts sourced from China. It doesn't exactly rustle my jimmies. Uh, now, Volkswagen, at least in their Argentina-based press conference, talks about a lot of different uh, engine sizes being made available, uh, including a 1.2-liter, 1.4-liter, and 2-liter turbocharged engine. Whether or not we get all those options here in the U.S., uh, I wouldn't exactly bet on it. Uh, Volkswagen's going to be probably trying to make this thing as cheaply as possible. So more than likely it will share a corporate uh, engine with the Volkswagen Jetta. I, if I remember correctly, that's a 1.6 liter turbocharged engine. Uh, will probably be mated to an 8 or 9 speed automatic and will have an available 4 motion all wheel drive system. I wouldn't exactly expect this thing to be a mountain goat, but... Uh, It'll probably be a little spunky, like other Volkswagens as of late. That being said, I haven't been particularly impressed with a lot of the American-designed uh, Volkswagens as of late. I'm thinking of the Jetta, I'm thinking of the Passat, uh, and I'm speaking of the Atlas as well. Uh, these vehicles are made to a price point, and it is really evident in the way that their infotainment system works. Uh, it's evident in the way that the quality and materials of the dashboard don't exactly blend together, uh, don't exactly feel particularly great, and really don't evoke the feelings that Volkswagens of the 90s and early, early 2000s had. And I think that's kind of been the continued struggle for Volkswagen overall. They continue to struggle with what their brand identity is, where they need to be in the marketplace, and really just struggle to have marketable vehicles in the first place. Uh, that's It's always been... Volkswagen's Achilles heel since the mid-2000s uh, when the MK4 Golfs left our shore, or well, didn't really leave our shores, but got replaced by the MK5s, and Volkswagen tried to move significantly upmarket, and people just weren't ready for that change. And Volkswagen has tried their best to kind of get back down to the level of Ford and Chevrolet, and that hasn't quite worked out either. And I, it's just a big mess. And so this Tarek, you know, being... As positive as possible on it, I think Volkswagen will likely make this vehicle fun to drive. I think they'll pack it with, you know, some pretty decent, comfortable seats. You know, it'll likely be a good size, being slightly larger, I would expect, than an HRV. Uh, but whether or not it makes a compelling value argument, I think, is the really tough part, especially when you consider there's a new HRV coming in the not too distant future. The Hyundai Kona already won a bunch of awards for being a very, very good small crossover. Uh, it's getting into a market that's very hot, uh, one that's going to have a ton of options, and if they don't have some standout features uh, to make a case for itself, Volkswagen is pretty much going to be arriving DOA uh, when it comes here probably early next year. So 
more news as it comes. Again, this is not an official announcement from Volkswagen. Uh, it's Volkswagen of Argentina showing off the vehicle uh, alongside a map of saying where it's going to be sold. And uh, uh, anything can really happen in these situations. So uh, hoping, of course, that Volkswagen improves some things a little bit, gets a little bit more specific on content, but uh, we likely won't know for quite a long time. So over at GM, we've got two stories to talk about, and the first one is uh, some kind of updates uh, on this new Chevrolet-branded EV uh, that got talked about by Mary Barra a few weeks ago. Uh, if you don't quite recall, uh, Mary Barra was saying that uh, one of the plants that had been slated for shutdown uh, was going to end up producing an all-new electric vehicle for General Motors sold under the Chevrolet brand, and uh, some leaks had come after that suggesting that the name of it would be the Bolt EUV, meaning Electric Utility Vehicle. Well, the folks uh, over at Autoblog posted some spy photos today of a looks like an EUV prototype uh, out driving around in Michigan, and uh, more or less, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, the Bolt EUV looks like it's pretty much just going to be a Bolt with a slightly higher riding position with a little bit more of a squared off back end to give it a little bit more of a utility purpose, um, but is essentially a Chevrolet Bolt uh, that's, well, SUV crossoverized. Uh, no word on when this is going to come out and be for sale. No word on what kind of price difference it'll be. Um, but I would imagine a few extra thousand dollars in base price will probably get you the larger version. Uh, you probably will see a slight dip in overall electric range for the vehicle. Uh, and in the end will be the vehicle that goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tesla's Model Y when that starts shipping in 2020. The weird thing here for me uh, is really just that GM is, you know, continuing to bet on the Bolt brand. Uh, after all, the Bolt did kill the Volt, uh, which is admittedly a little disappointing for me, uh, as much as that vehicle was one about compromise when it came to electric performance. Uh, it was an entry-level electric car that appealed to people who commute, and that was always a good thing. And as much as the Bolt can tout the fact that it has over 200 miles of range in a pretty mm, nicely sized vehicle, uh, it didn't exactly set the EV world on fire. It sold pretty okay, it's met some expectations, uh, but it's never really been the clear winner that I think it could have been from the outset. Now, with the big push towards crossovers and SUVs in the marketplace and seeing vehicles like the Hyundai Kona EV uh, take off in this kind of segment or the Kia Niro EV also doing the same kind of thing, uh, it does make me wonder if this Bolt EUV is going to be a big success. Um, I think it's definitely got the body shape down. It's definitely got the performance relatively correct, assuming that there's not a huge penalty for the changes in the bodywork. Uh, I think really for me the big question is whether or not the price is right. Uh, as it stands right now, you're still looking at about $40,000 for a Bolt, which I think is a little expensive when you compare it to, say, a Hyundai Kona EV. Uh, GM has lost a lot of their tax incentives for buyers, uh, so the price is much closer to that $40,000 range when you do purchase one directly from them. 
and with the Bolt, or excuse me, the Hyundai Kona EV ringing in for right around $30,000, at least the federal tax credit, that again still makes a much more credible uh, question, or asks a much more credible question of you. Uh, Do you want a vehicle that is, you know, roughly quote-unquote the right size for where the market's at, one that can go 250 miles on a single charge, one that includes a lot of really good standard equipment, and one that, uh, you know, is made by a company that's building really well-built, high-quality vehicles at this point in time. It's not to say that Chevy isn't, uh, but there is a pretty significant difference between the two uh, when you go from seat to seat. Now, granted, I haven't driven either one, uh, and, you know, you can make an argument that neither is going to come anywhere close to what a Model Y will probably do from Tesla in the next year or so. Um, So, you know, it's tough to say where things are going to be at in the not-too-distant future. I I think GM's doing the right thing by meeting market demands with this truck crossover SUV-type thing. I'm just not getting my hopes up on it being all that good of a vehicle, at least initially. Now, speaking of great expectations, the second story coming out of Chevrolet has to do with the Trailblazer nameplate. The ongoing saga with GM and nameplate usage, I think, is going to continue to be a mess no matter where you stand on the subject. Uh, People are still quite mad that the new Blazer uses that name despite not really having any off-road capability. And on the one hand, I go, yeah, I guess that's a good point. On the other, I go, who cares? It's a nameplate that has some recognition, and that's why GM is using it. Now, the Trailblazer name, uh, I'm confused why so many people, especially GM fans, are so excited about it because the Trailblazer that I remember wasn't all that great. Uh, But I guess to some extent, you know, people have soft spots for vehicles that were arguably slightly out of their time. The Trailblazer, of course, of course, started initially as a trim level on the S10-based Blazer uh, that was available in the early aughts and then eventually became its own model not too long after that. That Blazer basically existed as like a slightly smaller Tahoe option uh, that was available with a really novel inline-six engine. It was one of the first American inline-sixes that had been used in really quite a long time. And they were very capable SUVs that could, you know, tow a lot and really kind of get up and go. And people really loved them. Uh, I often think about the fact that Chevrolet sold a North Face branded uh, version of this truck when North Face still really wasn't a big brand here in the U.S. And that's just wild to kind of consider. Uh, But the Trailblazer, you know, changed a lot with the demands of the public at that point in time. Uh, They added a third row model later in its life. They eventually added a V8 as an option to replace the straight six uh, because it couldn't really cope with the higher weights and towing capacities being demanded of it. And by the time they killed the Trailblazer, it essentially was just a slightly smaller Tahoe. And it was always just kind of confusing to me why both of those models existed at the time. Uh, The model died, of course, during the fuel crisis and the uh, capital crunch and all that stuff of the late aughts and early teens and Chevrolet eventually replaced it with the Traverse, which, you know, by all accounts has been a pretty well-regarded crossover that, again, 
is only slightly smaller than the Tahoe, uh, but I guess just fit, fills some different needs and niches uh, with other people. Now, the Trailblazer name returning to GM is kind of a two-faced thing right now. Uh, initial reports had suggested that the Trailblazer name was going to be coming on a sub-Equinox sized crossover, uh, potentially to either split the difference between the tracks and the Equinox, or to be an outright replacement for the tracks, and people were kind of up in arms about it. I mean, it's fairly well known that the tracks is very old and needs to be replaced, and it looks like we're going to end up getting some kind of version of a crossover coming out of China to do that. Uh, but this Trailblazer name... You know, being on a vehicle that size just seems kind of strange. Again, how much value is being placed in just the name versus the actual product? Eh, it's GM. They can do whatever the hell they want. Uh, on the other hand, it looks like the Trailblazer name is going to be used in the same fashion that it has been from the outset. Uh, after the Trailblazer had died here in the United States, uh, the nameplate had continued to work on different models uh, in the Middle East and in Asia on uh, models that were based on the Chevy Colorado that was still available there as well. Uh, those Trailblazers were body-on-frame SUVs that were available with, uh, I don't know if it was necessarily a straight six, but I think it was a V6. Um, Still a little foggy on what exactly was going on there, but, you know, they were very credible vehicles that had a lot of capability that met a certain amount of needs. But once again, I say, it was only a little bit smaller than a Tahoe, so why don't you just get the damn Tahoe? Uh, but it looks like, more than likely, probably 90% sure, uh, the Trailblazer name is going to be returning as a Colorado-based crossover SUV type thing uh, here in 2020 or as early as 2021. Now, we are also expecting alongside of this vehicle being done a all-new version of the Colorado and Canyon to debut on the same chassis at the same time. Why is GM doing this? Well, they know that Ford's got the Bronco coming down the pipe, potentially two different versions of the Bronco coming down the pipe, and uh, they want to have a competitor ready for Ford. Uh, these Chevrolets, you know, they the pickup trucks themselves have been very well regarded as crosser, excuse me, pickup trucks that ride and drive quite well. They're pickup trucks that are right-sized with the right amount of horsepower uh, to get the right amount of work done for a lot of people. And for a long time, GM could not keep up with uh, sales numbers for these vehicles. They could not build enough of these to keep people happy. And as things kind of continue to progress towards SUVs and crossovers, there stems, stands to be a pretty good chance, I think, in the near future that this Chevy Trailblazer will likely be in a similar spot. That being said, the new Ford Explorer is on a similarly designed chassis. Uh, it will be a truck-based rear-wheel drive architecture under that one. And, uh, you know, once these things go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, it's going to be interesting to see who kind of comes out ahead. My hope, of course, is that GM doesn't sell a short and stick an underpowered turbocharged inline four under the hood. I hope that they do something different than the 3.6 liter V6. Uh, but again, I'm not really going to get my hopes up. As much as the old Trailblazer had some really novel ideas included in it, uh, GM really kind of can't take that risk with this thing. And uh, I would imagine, to some extent, they're just going to play it safe and uh, carry over a lot of the current truck parts into this new one. So 
Again, we'll see what happens. Uh, the earliest I would expect to see anything about this uh, SUV would probably be Los Angeles uh, for the auto show. And uh, what is that? November, I think, is when that show is. Uh, otherwise, we're probably going to have to wait until Chicago or New York in February or April of 2020 to find out more. So we'll keep you posted as things come along. So last up, I think it's kind of important that we talk a bit about the Dodge Journey. Uh, I believe we've talked about the Journey before on the show in the old car that's on my mind segment. And uh, as much as this kind of is basically an extension of that, uh, a lot of this has been spurred on by a story that was published on Jalopnik today reflecting on the Journey uh, and the ways that, you know, They've been really mean to the vehicle in the past couple of years, and uh, after having spent some time with one, uh, one of the writers went, maybe we shouldn't be so mean to the Dodge Journey. So before we get to some thoughts kind of on reflecting about what he says and maybe how I feel about the vehicle, I think it's really important to kind of talk about the journey that the Dodge Journey has been on from 2007 to 2019. Now, back in 2007, this was the era of Daimler Chrysler. Uh, Daimler-Benz had purchased Chrysler, uh, well, not quite a decade before that, but in the late 90s, meant to be the merger of equals. Chrysler wanted to increase their profile uh, in Europe, and Mercedes wanted to get more profits from the very well-performing Chrysler at that point in time. And in the end... Uh, Mercedes really abused their ownership of Chrysler. Chrysler really got the short end of the stick when it came to working with Mercedes. And as much as there were a few good products that resulted from that, namely the Jeep Grand Cherokee and the LX platform, uh, Chrysler 300, Dodge Challenger, Dodge Charger, uh, the rest of the stuff that came out in that time frame was just utter garbage. Uh, Chrysler went from arguably being the class-leading American brand to being, well, the laughing stock of the United States uh, when it comes to American motor vehicles. Uh, the Journey itself was the last of the Daimler Chrysler vehicles to come out uh, before their merger, which was eventually broken up. Chrysler eventually became Cerberus Chrysler and was then declared bankrupt, and then purchased by Fiat Chrysler, uh, was that, 2009, 2010? Uh, in that time frame, those initial years, the journey had a lot going against it. Uh, Daimler Chrysler had decided to raid the parts bin in order to quickly assemble this SUV uh, in a time when SUVs were continuing to boom. Uh, this vehicle was kind of meant to be a well, it was first of all meant to be a global SUV available not just here in the U.S., but in Europe to help increase Dodge sales and increase uh, some of the profitability for Daimler Chrysler uh, in Europe. This vehicle was sort of kind of meant to be a replacement for the Jeep Cherokee. Uh, as much as the Liberty had been doing that, uh, the crowd response to the Liberty was never all that great, and something that was, you know, a little more car-like in its overall execution probably could have filled that position much better. So the Journey was meant to look somewhat tough, somewhat truck-like, but it was still based on a car platform, uh, you know, the same platform that underpinned the Avenger, 
the Sebring and later the 200 was under there. It used the 2.4 liter world engine that was co-developed with Hyundai, Mitsubishi, and Chrysler. Um, really, it was just an amalgamation of everything that was currently available uh, and just kind of shoved out the door to meet a, a specific demand from the public. Now, here in the U.S., it got some pretty okay reviews initially. It was kind of a weird spot for it to be in in terms of size and performance. Um, it was a three-row SUV crossover type thing that, you know, did have enough space to adequately seat seven people uh, without too much screaming from the third row passengers. Uh, it got okay fuel economy for the time, depending on which engine option you chose. But I think the big complaint from everybody was, well, you know, it didn't drive particularly well, it didn't ride particularly well, and the build quality was definitely not so great. Over in Europe, uh, it was even worse. Chrysler had put in a six-speed dual-clutch gearbox assembled by Getrag that basically ate itself uh, in the time that you would have it. Uh, hundreds of these SUVs had major problems, and I think they either all got recalled and rebought or some horrible other thing happened, but nevertheless, uh, the product was a huge failure in Europe at the time, and uh, at the same point in time that this was happening, we had fuel economy prices just exploding across the planet. We had the financial collapse going on. Uh, money just really wasn't there for this vehicle, and it really is a miracle that it got through this process at all. Daimler Chrysler broke up, Cerberus managed the vehicle as best as it could, and by the time Fiat Chrysler had acquired the brand in the early 20-teens, uh, the Journey was one of the last vehicles to get a significant update in 2011 in order to keep it market competitive. Now, to me, in my brain, when the car came back in 2011, uh, it really almost seemed like a new car. The front fascia and rear fascia got completely redone. Uh, the suspension was updated. A uh, new engine was added, the 3.6-liter Pentastar V6. Uh, it, it really became an all-new vehicle that, again, kind of slotted in that spot where the Cherokee wasn't and really continued to make a pretty okay case for itself Again, being a practical uh, vehicle that had a lot of space for not a lot of money. Now, in that time frame, you know, I think Daimler Chrysler's decision to make this vehicle the way they did did ultimately get proven to be correct. You know, you look at the way that the Chevy Equinox kind of grew to kind of compete against it, or you look at something like the GMC Acadia that maybe was a little bit bigger than it, but kind of filled those same kind of spots. Uh, there's some weird kind of ripple effects that you kind of see from the journey even today. And even though that may have not have been the cause of it specifically, that segment that it was in kind of proved to be the right choice. And sitting in that segment now today, uh, kind of considering three-row vehicles that uh, have enough space but aren't quite doing everything the way that you want it to, like uh, something like the old Hyundai Santa Fe XL, something like that. Uh, you know, the Journey, I think, still kind of made a case for itself, especially when equipped with the V6. Now, today, 2019, referring to this Jalopnik article, the main thesis of it is, you know, maybe we are too mean to this vehicle. Uh, as it were, uh, the guy who drove this car for a couple of days had a base trim model 
uh, with a couple thousand dollars worth of upgrades put on it. It was a front-wheel drive four-cylinder model with a four-speed automatic, which I would argue is inexcusable today in 2019 as a powertrain configuration. Uh, but it's enough to get some okay fuel economy numbers, all things considered. Uh, but it still seats seven people. Uh, it's got plenty of space for all of those people on the inside. And when you consider the number of incentives that are placed on the hood of each Dodge Journey that's sitting at your local Dodge dealer, uh, you might end up getting a pretty nice vehicle for a pretty low amount of money. Uh, just looking at the website myself here before I start talking about this, uh, I built together a uh, 2019 Dodge Journey. I think it's called the Adventure Model. Uh, it's kind of their pseudo four-wheel drive tough man option uh, with the Pentastar V6 and four-wheel drive. Uh, the sticker price on that was somewhere north of like $34,000, but with almost $6,000 of incentives, you're getting a hell of a lot of vehicle for around 27 grand, give or take, and I think there actually might even be more incentives than that. Uh, whether or not you know that's the ultimate vehicle to get for that kind of money, I think you know you have better options out there. But when you consider that Dodge is probably selling these to people who are loyal to their brand or are doing subprime loan shopping. This isn't your worst option. If you need that amount of space, you need to seat that many people, uh, you need something that's going to get you from point A to point B, it's enough to get the job done. And, you know, there's there's still places for that kind of a vehicle here in the United States at this point in time in 2019. Uh, but like the guy who wrote the article said, you know, does Chrysler need to update this to be competitive today? Eh, mm, maybe, maybe not. But there's a part of me that definitely does wonder what the journey would be like if Fiat Chrysler did take the time to install the updated four-cylinder engine, to add the nine-speed automatic transmission, uh, to give it the much better infotainment system with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto that's available today. Uh, you know, could it be a pretty well-liked car? And, you know, the ultimate holdback, I think, is still the platform that's underneath it. I think there is definitely a spot for something like a journey to continue on uh, if it ever ended up getting replaced. But the hard part is, of course, that what is Dodge these days? Is it a high-performance wing of the Fiat Chrysler brand, or is it something that just carries the bastardized children of Daimler Chrysler that are still around today? Uh, that's a question, I suppose, for another episode of this show, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting kind of thinking about the Dodge journey. And uh, I, I definitely feel like my curiosity has been piqued when it comes to what used car prices look like on some of these uh, going forward. You know, I've talked a lot about how I might need to get a more practical vehicle for work. And as much as I get spooked by Chrysler quality issues and so on and so forth uh stri speaking strictly in terms of overall capability uh it's a tough vehicle to ignore in many situations and it's always going to kind of hold a weird soft spot in my heart well guys that just about wraps up this episode of the salvage title podcast for friday may 17th 2019. 
Uh, as always, I am your host, Brad Lake, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. And you can follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, if you haven't checked in in a while, we did change the URL link for the show. Uh, it just seems to be a little bit easier to find than just my username. So uh, hopefully that works out okay for you. As far as uh, other changes that have been happening with the show, well, we don't exactly have a schedule with when episodes get posted. I love to do it on Fridays, but my life gets weird in the summertime, so we can't always guarantee that. Uh, but we also do other episodes of the show, including uh, a pretty recent salvage title car buyer's guide episode where we talk about midsize crossovers. Uh, that'd be something like along the lines of like a Honda CRV and those type of competitors. So if uh, you're in the market for a vehicle like that, uh, head on over to listen to that episode and maybe get some feedback about some other vehicles in that price and size segment at this point in time. As far as other things are going on right now, guys, uh, Racing Christmas is right around the corner. That is, of course, the Sunday before Memorial Day, uh, where we have the Monaco Grand Prix, the Indy 500, and the Coca-Cola 600 down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, it's one of my favorite days of the year because you have racing on literally all day, uh, and it's a good opportunity to check out some of the classic and historic races uh, for Formula One, IndyCar, and NASCAR all in one weekend. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that as we get closer to that event. But in the meantime, guys, I hope you have a fantastic weekend and we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. See you then.